You are listening to Tales from the Trenches by Nicola Graham, a podcast focusing on all things business change related. Time to hand over to you, Nick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Tales of Change Management with myself, Nicola Graham. Today, we are actually shaking things up a little bit, and we have actually invited a panel of guests to join me in a conversation about IR35 and the implications to both contractors and companies. So we're actually joined here today by the lovely Nicole Slowey. Hello, Nicole. She is the Operations Director working at QDOS Contractors. We're also joined by Andrew Buxton, who is the Director of PDCS. And we are joined by Zane Bloor, who is the COO at Simplify Change. So without further ado, may I ask you all to give me a brief introduction of who you are and what brings you so passionately to this podcast today? Uh, Over to you, Nicole. Thank you, Nicola. I'm happy to be here today. Um, hi everyone, my name is Nicole Sloan and I am the Operations Director at QDOS. We are a specialist IR35 um, consultancy and insurance firm um, and we have been um, at the forefront of IR35 based services and advisory since the introduction of the original legislation back in the year 2000. As far as the kind of position that I very much take with IR35 and my experience over the last three years in working with organisations in the public sector as well as now in the private sector is that it can be managed compliantly from a client's perspective whilst also those clients still being able to continue to use contractors on an ongoing basis so compliance can be achieved and gained um, whilst both parties in the supply chain from the the contractor and client side um, can continue to work on the basis of engaging contractors for those key services um, contractors still engaging with clients in the flexible way in which they currently do. So having gone through that for both public sector and, and private sector before delay, um, I, I very much kind of have a lot of experience in demonstrating that it can be managed without organisations having to take extreme measures and perhaps um, completely exiting the, the contractor market, which obviously is not a favourable um, position as far as the market's concerned at all. Excellent, thank you. It sounds to me like you've uh, you've already traced a very valuable role within all of the CIR35 uh, stuff there, Nicole. So um, thank you for that introduction. Over to you, Andrew. Who are you? <laughs> Hi, Nicola. I'm also very pleased to be here today. Thank you. Um, so I'm uh, director and co-founder of uh, PDCSRA Programme and Project Management Consultancy Practice. We engage client organisations to undertake um, assessments of their uh, portfolio program and project management processes, organization, culture, tool set and people. And the people piece is the one I'm here to talk excitedly about today from a client perspective. Um, we in our model um, or our engagement include resource optimization. So ensuring that organizations are delivering their portfolio of change appropriately through the resources they've got. So the subject of IR35 is is one that uh, that rears its head on every occasion we're engaged with. So I'm looking forward to the, the debate. Excellent. Thank you very much, Andrew. And for those listeners who may be familiar, Andrew and myself have actually previously, previously done a podcast together uh, where we actually discussed how the, the new world is changing changing the way of um, programs and projects and the way they run so if you haven't if you haven't tuned into that into that podcast do take a listen because Andrew is a a a, um, a wealth of knowledge over there so it's really interesting listen and we've had some really good feedback about that one so thank you for that Andrew over to you Zane who are you and what are you doing here 
Thanks, Nick. Um, my name is Zane Bloor. I'm the COO and co-founder of Simplify Change, uh, change management consultancy, as you know. Um, my role on this panel really is I have a long history as a contractor in the UK. Um, I've contracted for almost a number of decades now over the, the last well couple of decades and um, I've been heavily impacted by our RF35 so I'm bringing my experiences to bear as a contractor um, on this panel and um, it's my view definitely that um, the legislation and brought in by HMRC has really negatively impacted contractors and companies too removing flexibility and lots of options which um, have hurt both sides, both parties, really. So um, hopefully I can add to the panel and looking forward to the debate, definitely. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction, everyone. And just um, just where, where I'm I'm angled at um, on this podcast is actually I'm going to try and uh, bust some of that jargon, as I like to do on these podcasts. So um, if, you, if you're more from my area, where if I'm honest, I know a little bit a little bit about IR35. I don't know that, you know, the real details of it. I'm definitely going to ask for some support from from all of our all of our guests today as to explaining that to me and some of the listeners that may may need that explanation to them. Um, and without without further ado, that brings me on to my first question, which is actually um, what exactly is IR35? So IR35 in simple terms is a piece of tax legislation um, that tries to distinguish between workers who are genuinely operating as self-employed businesses versus those who are essentially employees of their clients, but using a limited company to avoid tax, which also brings benefits to the employer as well without them having to pay tax. I would note that when the Labour government introduced the legislation back in the year 2000, that this was all based around a perception that limited companies were being used as a vehicle for tax avoidance. Nowadays, um, with changes to kind of um, dividend tax, changes to VAT, various other bits and pieces, the actual financial gain that individual contractors can actually make from operating on a limited basis is not as significant as what it once was. And the term that was frequently used at the time was a kind of a, a Monday to Friday or Friday to Monday contractor where you would have an employed individual in a role within an organisation as an employee who would resign in the business on a Friday and come back in the organisation on a Monday as a contractor, um, undertaking the exact same role, providing the same services back to the business as they did when they were an employee. And that is very much what sort of kind of pushed the government to review and consider introducing the legis legislation where that was being sort of engineered as a means by which individuals could increase um, their own personal income and companies could avoid paying the relevant employment taxes that were due. Um, the kind of 17 years up to 2017, um, where contractors carried the entire responsibility of IR35, um, not a huge amount happened. HMRC had a couple of different ways in which to place the legislation, how they could manage it. Um, but then we saw change where actually in 2017 there was reform in the legislation which affected only organisations in the public sector. Um, that shifted the responsibility for applying and considering IR35 to the individual public sector bodies and the, any recruitment agencies that were in those supply chain. And where we're at now, um, we are looking down the, the barrel of that being introduced and rolled out again in April 2021. It was originally supposed to be introduced in April this year, but postponed due to COVID-19. 
Brilliant. Thank you for that explanation, Nicole. And I guess over to you, Andrew. I mean, you you mentioned um, that um, actually there is the conundrum that employees have. How how does this impact them? So, it, well, well, conundrum is more from the employer's uh, standpoint, uh, Nick, rather than the employee, as far as I see it. So, uh, and when we're engaging with um, with organisations, and they are especially now in the world of um, this fluidity around the, the, the COVID-19 situation with IR35 reform on the horizon getting ever closer to us. Organisations that are considering their change portfolio over the next 12, 18, 24 months, which is difficult to, to obviously to forecast in the current situation. That's making the resourcing conundrum, um, as, as, as we call it, uh, more and more difficult for them because an organization could an organization have had the standpoint of considering that all interim flexible contractors are inside IR35 that's their standpoint straight away we're just going to consider this as an inside IR35 position unless it's deterred otherwise um i i, I believe in from my perspective that's that seems a, a fairly unfair position for and stance for a company to take but i also sympathize with them because it's all about managing risk and no organization wants to expose themselves to um, a potential investigation by hmrc and find that because they didn't have a point of inside um, they find themselves liable so what, what are your thoughts on that nicole i think it's a, a difficult piece of legislation um, for organisations, client side, suppliers in the middle and contractors um, all to kind of get to grips with and get their heads around. I think that contractors have shouldered the responsibility for IR35 to the benefit of themselves in part, but also to the benefit of the organisations that engage them, because ultimately those client businesses have not needed to consider the legislation and have very much engaged contractors in a way that could go against the legislation as far as being considered compliant but was of no consequence to the clients up until now and I think that point that you make around consideration of risk Andrew is a good one because I think lots of organisations are so driven by this fear of risk that they can't sort of take a step back and look at the bigger picture as far as well okay we have engaged contractors in this way up until this point because it's worked for the business but it's only been that way because that's the way it's always been as opposed to thinking well now legislation is changing, can we take a step back and look at what compliance looks like from an IR35 perspective and how contractors should be engaged? And, and, and the principle of the legislation is very much looking at when you engage the services of a contractor, you need to be making that distinction between how you utilise them as a resource or a service versus how you engage with your own employees. And there needs to be a difference between the two because if there's not, you're in effect failing the kind of test of the fact that you're supposed to be engaging the services of a small business and kind of really need to emphasize that that business to business relationship awesome. so it's a, a difficult one for people to get their head around when they've operated in a certain way for a long time um, but you, you kind of can through education and consideration for change make tweaks and they can be small which would actually really help businesses kind of um compliantly position outside our 35 contractors. Nicole, can I briefly interrupt to, to, to just say that it, 
at this present time, right now with the COVID crisis continuing and so on, there's a huge amount of uncertainty in the market. Um, IR35 legislation, as you say, has been pushed back from March to or April to next April. And surely the government should be trying to, to help companies and people be employed as much as possible and uh, effectively removing the, the flexibility, making companies in particular jump through more hurdles to to be sure they, they don't have that risk that Andrew, Andrew mentioned is actually going to hurt not only contractors as a whole group of people, but also the companies. So I've heard, for example, through my network that various companies are obviously not allowed right now to hire permanent staff because of cash flow and other budgetary reasons. So they're looking at, they do need to, however, skill up in certain areas and they actually are looking at contractors as a short-term solution. But with IR35, that starts to get in the way because we're almost, I think we're less than six months now to April. So that needs to be taken into consideration. So there are all those sort of uh, ramifications right now to to helping people and really surely the government should be should be helping. Yes, I think it's it is a valid point, Dane, and I think that the challenge that the government has now is the financial and economic repercussions of COVID-19 and the measures that the Chancellor has introduced has created an ever-increasing requirement for the government to kind of recoup more and more taxes. When um, the IR35 reform was presented for um, private sector, they estimated that by 2023-24 tax year, based upon an introduction date of 2020, that it would yield in excess of a billion pounds of tax revenue. Um, um, that figure has been challenged can, uh, time and time again as to the accuracy of it. Um, but I think that the position the HMRC took as far as the delay earlier in the year, the fact that the legislation is now in statute, so we had the, um, the Finance Act 2020 um, came into effect on the 22nd of July. So from a legislative perspective, it is, is coming and actually in order to reverse that would be quite considerable from a, a legislative and parliamentary perspective. But I think that the COVID-19 presents a series of challenges for organisations having to, mm -hmm. to get to grips with what that brings for their companies, having most businesses, having lots of employees now working from home, as well as then also the consideration of the legislation. Um, the difficulty is from HMRC's perspective is that organisations should have been ready ahead of April. So we had the delay announced in March. COVID only really started to be an issue for, in March this year, within the UK certainly. And HMRC's stance on that is very much has been, well, we've done lots of education. You should all know about this. And actually, you should have been prepared before there was a delay. But we gave you a delay insofar as we knew that kind of March, April, May, there was going to be a lot of kind of uncertainty within the country as far as the pandemic. So I, I kind of appreciate the sentiment, but I think that the stance that the government is just taking is that it, it is coming in largely come hell or high water insofar as it's in statute and, and as far as they're concerned, they have given companies, and this is clients' client side, the information and tools and notice in order to actually be ready ahead of the, the delayed introductory date of April next year. Thanks. Um, do you think there might be another delay or is that not feasible at all? From a, a legal perspective and a legislative standpoint, I believe it is possible, but not practical. And I think the last time the government adjusted a finance act that was in statute was somewhere, I think it was upwards of 20 years ago. So there would be a series of different types of parliamentary type steps that would need to be undertaken to pause it. 
I think the fact that we're not having an autumn budget this year, um, that's typically where you would see the an announcement of that type. Um, just sort of adds further to the fact that it's in statute, so any reversal would be um, a significant change as far as the, the government's um, stance on, on budget and the Finance Act as a whole. That's, that, that's a good point, uh, Nicole, as well. And, but it, 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 um, and Zane, you brought a very valid point to the table there when you talked about the, the problems that employers or hirers have in the fact that headcounts typically are frozen. Many organisations are going through, unfortunately, going through major consultation with their people right now um, as the furlough scheme, OK, may be replaced um, shortly, but it's certainly winding down right now. Organisations have got this conundrum of we, our headcount is frozen, IR5 is on the horizon. Certainly in the dis discussions I'm having, the only other option, if if uh, an organisation is taking a sweeping, we're not using contractors, um, it can be a, an exceptional engagement, is we are going to outsource, in, in the world I'm talking about, which is change, uh, we're going to outsource that to um, either booty or large consultancy practices. Um, and that comes with its own challenges, of course, uh, not least is financial. Um, and when businesses are conscious of cash right now, engaging large consultancies can actually be uh, can be challenging for them from a cash flow perspective as well as an engagement point of view. But um, a lot of larger organisations already have their uh, engagements with large management consultancies and maybe will extend what they're doing to replace contractors. I don't know what the panel think of that. I guess I have a question for for that one, if you don't mind, Andrew. So you'd mentioned obviously that you, you know there will there will be essentially a gap with it within organisations where that need, that needs to be filled, and and what is that then organisations are going to start looking towards the big consultancy firms. How how does it work in terms of a big consultancy firm? Surely not all of their staff members are then permanent permanent members of you know of, of that company and then you know you know in you know in 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 my logical head surely then you're entering another kind of situation of IR35 as to just determining or de defining what what the difference between their roles is whether they are obviously considered employed an employee of that firm or whether they're considered as a, a contractor how does that work that's that's a really 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 good question Nicola, I'm absolutely, again, going to defer to my colleague, Nicole, <laughs> to, to answer that one. No, it, it <laughs> is a really good, good point. It, no, it really is, and it's something that comes up a lot. But as with any piece of tax legislation that exists within the UK, there are some exceptions contained within the rules. And within the off-payroll legislation, there is a exception, if you like, that sets out if a client is a recipient of fully outsourced services, then that client does not need to consider IR35. The IR35 responsibility, if there are contractors in the supply chain, would sit with the supplier of said outsourced services. So in the example that Andrew talked about, what this does is presents an opportunity for consultancies at the minute because they are higher in demand, because some clients might think, OK, I do still have a requirement for contractor type 
services and contractor type resource, but I don't want the headache of IR35. So what I'm going to do is look to see where I can still engage and utilise these types of services, but not have to carry that risk. Now, as with any exception, or if you take it in a slightly negative connotation, a loophole that then creates opportunities for illegitimate um, kind of schemes and suppliers sort of cropping up, promising clients a kind of um, silver bullet as far as IR35 is concerned. And that's where client side certainly need to be very careful as far as who are they are looking to engage with from that outsource perspective. So like um, Andrew had said, you have your larger consultancies if you take like a, a Capgemini or a Deloitte or someone like that they will most certainly use contractors to provide services back to their clients but because Capgemini or Deloitte have arms around the service provision um, they have control over the deliverables it's up to them how they resource that project they are wholly accountable back to their client for the delivery of that project that sort of cements them as being considered the client for the purposes of IR35 in that supply chain. Um, the challenge that that presents for organisations is if you're a client who is accustomed to utilising just a labour model where you have a headcount, an inverted commas, let's say, of 250 contractors, and you want to look at transitioning that to an outsourced service so that you don't have to consider IR35, that's going to be very difficult because how you engage with a consultancy supplier versus how you engage with a recruitment agency providing manpower is very, very different because the output and the service is considerably removed one from the other. Um, so opportunities for consultancies, opportunities for clients to look at alternative ways to circumvent the rules, if you like, while still maintaining the utilisation for contractors, but potential increase in costs because those types of consultancies can be much more expensive um, and potential risks if you engage with a consultancy supplier who is new to the market, not familiar with actually delivering projects and deliverable based um, pieces of work and scopes of work, then there could be risks because you could be considered as a client not to be fulfilling your obligations and only trying to look for a way in which to circumvent the rules. Wow. Sorry, Andrew. You so, had a... so, yeah, so on that point, Nicole, um, if there is a, and, and I, I get that, that it's surrounded by a consulting engagement or a statement of work from the consultancy itself, but what happens in the event of a change to that statement of work? So, as we all know, in any engagement with a, with a statement, typically there will be a change to that statement of work. How, how does, what is the implications of change within, a, within an SOW? Liability lie for, for, for that change and, and, and how the IR35 position is determined? Yeah, so kind of a lot of that will come back to the engagement between the supplier and the client, and then conversely, the engagement and contract exists between the supplier and the limited company contractor. When we work with organisations in the sort of consultancy space and the consultancy bracket, the point that we always try and maintain is that it needs to be genuine and legitimate and it needs to work. You can't try and kind of force a resource solution into that consultancy type model. In most organisations who are legitimate consultancies will ha have established change request processes that mm -hmm. exist and that references um, 
the issuance of potentially a new scope of work and a new statement of work, that there are appropriate and relevant sign-offs or maybe kind of budgetary considerations as part of that process, and that you just have that kind of paper trail to evidence an actual change in the scope of work. Now, that between the client and the supplier in itself doesn't necessarily have an IR35 consideration, but that then being reflected in the individual engagement between the contractor and the supplier potentially does. So from an IR35 compliance perspective, you need to be engaging contractors for a specific project, um, for a defined, defined piece of work, specific project and defined set of um, a, a window of time. Where there are changes to that, what the supplier needs to be able to demonstrate is that any change needs to be at the agreement of the contractor. Again, you want to ensure that there is a robust audit trail and paper trail that you can demonstrate that because largely, if you make a change to a contractor's contract as far as the scope of work, and if it's out with the realms of this types of services that the contractor provides or the contract that exists, contractor should be well within the rights to decline that and, okay. and just say, well, actually, that isn't the piece of work that I've been engaged to do, Mr. Client. I, I'm kind of, I would like to kind of end the contract on the basis that we have it and, and walk away from there. So that's the, the point of IR35 consideration and the, the complexity with the use of consultancies or using the outsourced, outsourced service sort of loophole is that there are layers or additional layers of compliance that need to be considered. There's a engagement between the client and the supplier, a legitimate provision of outsourced services. And then once that's decided, which will then decide which party is responsible for considering IR35, it's then about looking at the actual working practices and the way in which the contractors actually engaged and how they deliver the services. And that's the basis upon which the IR35 determination would be made. Right. Sammy, you had so, a question. Um, I was just going to follow up really to say that um, and Nicole and, and and Andrew really. So when IR35 was initially introduced, it was almost like, uh, if I remember, that was a long time ago, that almost every contractor almost immediately created or had to create a limited company. And then for over time, the legal situation changed. And then it was almost assumed that if you were going to provide services to a, to a client, you would do it through a limited company. That almost became the only option. We're now in a situation where um, because of IR35 and the complexities of the rules on both sides and the chain of legal responsibility that you just described, Nicole, that do you think it's likely that contractors are going, you're going to see a, a huge number of limited companies formed or consultancies formed that are trying to provide the same services um, in a outsource model um, right now. Um, but in reality, they almost are just disguised um, contractors. Do you think that's likely? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I <laughs> do too. Yes. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> Andrew, you so have a lot think, of... Sorry, don't you think that the HMRC's uh, approach to, to raise funds and so on to get more tax, etc., they're not going to get the goals that they've set at all because companies and contractors really are just going to to do what they can to to work inside the rules, but to limit their tax exposure. So I think Sorry. that the position that HMRC um, will take on the sort of utilisation of the exemptions is that there will be very much a targeted and focused um, series of compliance activity centred around that as far as anyone who's trying to purport to be something that they are not 
or create some sort of means and mechanisms by which to um, by which to, to circumvent the rules. If the, the opposite happens and that you'll have contractors trying to kind of create small consultancies and become, become consultants with it, consultancy firms within their own rights, um, you're right, HMRC will not see the relevant tax revenue if that happens. The challenge is if contractors make that decision to engage in that way is the compliance responsibility of the clients that they work with and the other suppliers that they might feed into will in effect find that out insofar as the due diligence that those organisations would need to be, need to do in, in, insofar as considering IR35 in the wider um, sense as far as looking further down their supply chain in terms of how those organisations are engaged. But I think that in addition to that, we'll see a change and potentially a drop in the use of limited companies with some organisations either taking a blanket position or contractors themselves proactively making the decision that because all of this now very much is on the shoulders of clients, the uncertainty around it is, is such that contractors may look for employed options, they may look for um, fixed-term contract options, or even consider going down the umbrella company route, um, all of which have different kind of financial ramifications and contractual ramifications for them. But if contractors do go down those routes then that gives HMRC the relevant employment taxes that they think that they have been missing so it's kind of forced compliance by virtue of um, individuals transitioning into alternative engagement models outside of limited company contracting. So thank you for that Nicole sorry I, I've, I've got so many questions <laughs> um, but before I ask um, a, a topical question I just you mentioned fixed contracts uh, contract contracts that contractors might go for as a different option well, what do we mean by that and how does that how does that essentially protect them from IR35? Yeah so FTC or a fixed term contract is effectively a employed contract that you would have with an organisation so a client you would effectively become an employee for say a nine month period if you were a fixed term contractor so that would see you having the relevant um, PAYE um, and national insurance deductions taken so you you would not be operating through your limited company so it doesn't give contractors any protection but it would potentially either present them with greater level of certainty on earnings greater level of certainty on um, a contract um, and that might be the only option that's been offered to them potentially at the client organization that they work at as an alternative to an outside IR35 type contract Perfect. And just a quick question, uh, add into that then. Um, so if I if if I'm a contractor and I go into a fixed contract, does that also, uh, which which, in a roundabout way, tells me that I'm employed by um, by by that company for a certain period of time? Does that mean that I'm also entitled to that the benefits of employees? Yeah, yeah. So in that capacity, you would be considered an employee of the company. And there's every time that we talk about IR35 and. The ramifications of being inside IR35 if you keep your limited company in place is that you have all of the negatives of employment engagement by virtue of the employment tax deductions but you have none of the positives as far as employee benefits that come with it so that's why alternative routes such as either a fixed term contract on an employed basis permanent employment or umbrella companies are often seen as 
alternative options than contractors working on an inside basis through their limited companies because there's no protection or benefits in doing that way but you do suffer the relevant tax deductions as you would if you were an actual employee. Right, I see. Okay, thank you for that. And you, so, so we've th this conversation has been obviously talking about um, consultancy firms and the fact that they um, they can be utilised by by clients as an outsourced service. So essentially, they don't have to consider IR thirty five. And we've also spoken about the the, the risk that, that that's there of. A, a bunch of contractors consolidating together or grouping together and becoming almost like an umbrella. You know the, the way the way it, the way it um, makes sense to me is like almost an umbrella consultancy firm, a smaller consultancy firm. And then we we talk about changes to statement of work and how that would um, how that would apply an effect on, um, on 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 an existing contract. It, wow. I mean, if I'm a company. How do I know if I'm in IR35, out, out of IR35, where do I where do I move? Like, where do I go for uh, knowledge? Because there is, it sounds to me like there are so many rules like there are in every kind of policy, but what do I do next? I think education of the legislation is a massive thing um, for contractors themselves, for companies themselves. And one thing that I would say is that the market has very much become saturated with information, but it's also become saturated with misinformation as far as what is considered compliant, what will get you outside of IR35 and in inverted commas. So I think that certainly for individual limited company contractors themselves, they should be looking in the marketplace for an organisation like Kudos, not to be biased, but certainly an organisation who has kind of provided IR35 services from the early onset of the legislation to kind of give you some context. We've made determinations on 150,000 engagements since your organisation was incorporated and defended over 1,600 contractors against HMRC and IR35 contract inquiries. So there's, there's, there are a handful of organisations out there like us who have sort of been at the coalface of IR35 since the introduction and have lots of kind of free resources and guides, white papers and webinars that can really get contractors up to speed on key aspects of IR35 status and what is considered good working practice and what's considered negative working practice. But kind of positively, what I certainly saw the last time was um, suppliers and clients in, in engaging with their contractor workforce on educating them on IR35, just as much as the clients and suppliers themselves were getting education on IR35. And there's definitely a lot to be said, both from a client side and a supplier side, and even a contractor side, that the successful implementation on any IR35 project within any organisation comes down to communication and interaction between stakeholders right the way through the supply chain because it's essential to get the necessary buy-in, ensure that everyone has the, the kind of same understanding and that contractors have the opportunity to contribute to that because fundamentally they've had to deal with this legislation since its introduction back in the year 2000. So contractors themselves have a lot of insight and a lot of experience and um, Zane, I suppose it would be useful from you to get a bit of an understanding as to what your own kind of personal experiences were with IR35 when you when you were contracting. Yeah, great. And then after that, Andrew, I would also like to understand how you, what, what your clients have been saying about this as well, if that's okay. But over to you, Zane. Yeah, will do. Sure. So, yeah, Nicole, I've had a long history contracting in the UK, so I have 
taken out insurance, for example, against um, R35 investigations have had contracts reviewed. Um, I think, as you say, it's it's imperative that you work with your clients to uh, make sure that um, they're in agreement on how you're working, make sure you can, for example, use a substitution clause and uh, have all the, uh, all the um, you mitigate risks as much as possible from your own point of view as a contractor to make sure that you, you're meeting the rules and not falling, well, it depends how you want to work, but not falling inside R35 generally. Um, I think there are lots of reasons to still be a contractor and not so much the financial reasons, but the flexibility to work when and where you like for the clients that you like. That hasn't gone away. And I think these rules have been put in place and they largely put a damper on almost the spirit of being a contractor and working for yourself and taking risks and so on, which I, I don't particularly like. Um, so there are alternatives, forming your own consultancy and so on. Um, obviously, over the last couple of years or so, I formed a Simplify Change with Nicola. So I'm not a contractor anymore. I'm absolutely now a consultancy owner, which has got its own problems and so on. But, um, but we are still involved with companies that need to deal with R35, Andrew, PDCS, et cetera. Um, so that's all very interesting. So I still keep my finger on the pulse. And then obviously I am still connected to the wider network of contractors who do work through a variety of mechanisms. Um, do you think, I, I just put it out, so maybe we can answer this after Andrew, do you think the whole contractor market is becoming less competitive because of R35? We're we gonna see people uh, losing contracts potentially to overseas and overseas suppliers potentially now that um, COVID-19 is pretty much the new normal and people can work from anywhere. I uh, should cover Maybe after Andrew's response. Yeah, um, I do, Zane, actually. Um, unfortunately, in, in one way, um, it's we're, we're, we're coming towards a perfect storm right now. Um, COVID-19 has, has brought into sharp relief um, the the issue with the contractor marketplace um, somewhat in that um, we're at a, we're at a position where there are quite a significant number of contractors who are on the market right now. Um, they're not a normal. This is not normal for anybody. Uh, this current situation, um, but certainly not for the contractor marketplace who haven't been supported by. The government since the uh, since the, the the start of lockdown. I, I need to add to this association. I have to say, um, the issue, as I see it, is that organisations are choosing to make a decision on their resourcing. Some are looking, certainly, outside of the UK, um, certainly to some of the very large outsourcing practices to be bringing in resource whether that's delivering it remotely, in many cases that is, um, but also delivering resources remote um, from, from offshore as well into the UK to deliver uh, contractor-like resource um, uh, services. The perfect storm I'm talking about is that there is this um, unfortunate positioning, a lot of contractors who are currently looking for work. Day rates, as a consequence, are being squeezed by of potential offshore providers and that is an economy of scale because there are more people looking for work. Contractors are having to consider how they secure and protect themselves, whether that, as, as Nicole was talking about, using an umbrella uh, 
type contract to protect themselves but still retain that flexibility you were talking about Zane which which contractors enjoy and and not just contractors employ, uh, enjoy but employers enjoy that ability to be able to flex rapidly upwards and downwards by using great flexible interim uh, subject matter people within within that space so it, it's it's really difficult because if as companies move into uh, into using umbrella companies as, as, as good as they are um, that again squeezes squeezes the, uh, the, the, the their day rate and their ability to earn, which 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 indicates that the decisions a contractors have to make is do we retain a contractor approach or we look at a different, whether it's fixed term, or whether it's longer term permanent em employment, and the conundrum again comes round to the employer who has to make the decision: where do I go for my resources? Um, do I use fixed term contracts? Do I go for increased headcount, which is harder to do because in the current situation we, we have headcount freeze, or do we use an outsourced provider? So long-winded answer, Dane, to say that, yeah, there is a real risk that the UK contractor marketplace could be on attack from, um, from offshore providers. Certainly, it's a threat, in, in my opinion. And how one, does one look, sorry, sorry go on, Nicola. Um, just, I was just going to ask the, um, if, you, if you don't mind flowing that into the conversation. Well, I might, my curiosity here is recruitment agencies. How, you know, what does the, how does this affect and impact them as well? Well, it, it, it clearly impacts them from um, uh, for the same very self same reasons that I've just been talking about with the with the availability of uh, this this almost huge amount of resources that are out there um, that are available for the marketplace um, but employers are taking a view as to whether they should use the you know great valuable services that recruitment agencies provide um, or whether they do it themselves um, a lot of organizations are at this moment in time being very careful on with cost management so using recruitment agents I think he's under threat right now, especially in the in, in, in the contractor and in the permanent marketplace as well, because um, organizations are looking to insource this themselves. Whether that's appropriate to do so is questionable, but um, because there's a lot of value and a lot of skill that recruitment agencies provide as long as they do their job really 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 well and in line with I don't want to get off the IR35 subject matter but as, as long as they get you know they are compliant and they do do their job really well I know that Nicole can certainly uh, attest to the risk that recruitment agencies carry in the forms for IR35 but I, but I think it's a it's a difficult world for recruiters right now um, because of the, the the flood of resources that are marketplace and organisations considering using, uh, in, you know, in-house resourcing to uh, or recruiting to, to to bring people on board. One one thing I'd like to just touch on that we've sort of just going off 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 off. Off piste a second. Um, well, it's not off piste. Um, Nicole, you've talked about due diligence and yes. determination on a number of occasions. Um, absolutely. Uh, a lot of my clients, um, when undertaking their own determination 
are using the check employment status for tax, the HMRC CEST tool, um, because, well, that's where that's what HMRC points you towards for determination um, for IR35. There's a lot, there's a lot of noise out there about CEST, um, but a lot of organisations are using it to determine the status of IR35 for their supply chain and for their contractors. Quick jargon but bust there are a lot here, of other sorry. tools out there as well. Sorry, Andrew, quick jargon bust here. What is CEST? Um, so, yeah, it's the it's HMRC's uh, Check Employment Status for Tax. CEST stands for Check Employment Status for Tax. It's, it's HMRC's own tool for determining the status of IR35, whether you are inside or outside. Okay, so I would use this as a um, as an employer and I would understand it, or can I also use it as a contractor? Uh, you can use it for both, yes. Perfect, thank you very much. Sorry, back to your back to your original question then, Nicole, <laughs> or answering the question, thank you. Yes, I think that, um, like Andrew said, there's a lot of noise that exists around CEST in the marketplace. Um, I think the kind of key things for clients to think about is Principally, it's only guidance from HMRC. It's not an absolute requirement. I wholly understand why organisations would point to that as a first port of call, given that it is HMRC's design tool, because they've designed it to help organisations get to grips with um, determining um, status for, for um, contractors or any sort of off-payroll type workers. Um, but I think that without getting into the detail of the challenges around CES, there's a couple of things I think that organisations need to be aware of. In some instances, the application doesn't always give clients a determination. So you can go through the questionnaire, the online tool, and it can tell you at the end it's an indeterminate result. That presents a lot of challenges for clients because you're kind of saying, right, well, I'm looking to HMRC to help me with this. I'm, I'm doing the, the, the assessment. I'm going through the tool. Um, and then at the end of it in the output, I, I don't actually have an answer. Um, I don't necessarily have anywhere to go to. And what that sort of opens up is clients, not necessarily wrongly, but simply just by virtue of looking for an answer, perhaps engineer the, the question inputs a little bit. And that's where you're, you're going to see a lot of the compliance challenges from HMRC is around the input to the questions um, and the risk that that potentially presents. And then... Um, we had an example with NHS Digital who utilised CEST as its means of considering the IR35 status of its contractor workers through um, the public sector rules when they were applied from April 2017. Um, and they made a provision within their accounts for 1819 to the tune of £4.3 million because after an IR35 compliance check from HMRC, HMRC took the view that um, NHS Digital's use and interpretation of the CEST questions was in fact incorrect and, and suggested that they should reclassify a large selection of their workers from outside IR35 to, to inside IR35. So NHS Digital presumably thought they were doing the right thing following HMRC's guidelines using their tool, but ended up at the, the wrong end of that insofar as how they um, got to the result that they did with the compliance check that they had. And I think that that's a prime example of why organisations should maybe look for other and or additional ways in which to consider status and due diligence. One of them is definitely training and internal understanding of, 
of status and, and this key status test and how that organisation actually engages contractors um, before you're even thinking about using a tool because your business needs to be fully informed as part of that. And then the latter part is, well, actually, do we have expertise in-house? Do we need to consider engaging specialists? Um, do we need to, to have a look at what best works for our organisation as far as how we actually get to grips with the determination responsibility that we have um, under the legislation. And for me and the experience that I've had over the last three years, it isn't a one size fits all as far as what's the right type of solution for one organisation might be a very different type of solution for another organisation. A lot of that is driven by industry sector, the, the population of the contingent workers that you have, the type of engagement and types of services that are provided. So there's lots that businesses need to consider as part of what their approach to managing their determination responsibility um, actually is. Thank you for that, Nicole. Um, Zane, did you have a question? Um, I was just going to say that um, as a contractor, to use the tool provided by HMRC is slightly biased, I guess is one way to look at it. I would definitely rather look at um, feedback and guidance from maybe an impartial organisation or someone who is not HMRC, let's put it that way, um, but maybe a subject matter expert personally. So I've used other tools and organisations in the past to check my IR35 status and, and that of others really. So yeah, um, but it is a starting point and it's useful to have that in place if you have nowhere else to go, if you like, just to get some idea, definitely. Excellent, thank you. So, um, thank you for today. I guess, I guess, you know, to leave leave today's uh, uh, podcast on uh, on positive notes. What 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 would you consider um, um, the positives of the IR thirty five? I mean, what's the general consensus between the panel here? Do we do we think that IR thirty five is a good thing? And you know, so what positive um, attributes is it bringing to the country? Um, Andrew, to you first. I think the spirit of IR35 is a good thing. Um, so I understand completely why uh, HMRC have, uh, are, are forming IR35. Um, the practice of it, I'm not wanting to spin a positive <laughs> to a negative too quickly. I think in practice, the implementation needs to be thought about considerably by HMRC. Um, I think we are where we are, um, and uh, as Nicole has said, it's um, the July date has now passed, so it's it's in the legislature. Um, so um, we have to we have to work um, with with what we've got coming up, and I think that it, it, it's going to be a reality from from April next year. I don't think the government will will kick it down the road again. They may do, but I don't think they will. Um, so I think we do educate, educate and educate everybody to understand that the flexible interim workforce is incredibly valuable to UK PLC and we need to be working inside, the, I'll use a different word than inside I think, but we need to be working <laughs> alongside the uh, and be compliant with the, 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 the new legislation but embrace it, we, we, it is what it is. So, um, so, so let's, just, let's just get on with it but do it properly. Let's okay. just do it properly. Perfect. And how about yourself, Zane? Positives of IR35 or are you, uh, <laughs> you know, as a previous contractor, are you against it? What's your thoughts? 
Well, um, I think the, the rules being put in place um, will bring certainty into how it's working. And I don't see them changing in the future, in the short term, at least for the next couple of years, let's say four or five years after that. So in terms of future changes, I, I think everyone is starting to get a picture of how things will work, even though they're complex, that's fine. Um, everyone has an idea of how to work and as they as they want to work in relating to IR35. Um, the broader picture for me, I think, is that there is a huge amount of change going on in the world right now. COVID, Brexit, um, working from almost anywhere you like. Uh, so there are huge opportunities for contractors. Um, so IR35 is just part of that mix, really. So it's not all doom and gloom at all. It's um, focus on the opportunities and, and see where that see where it leads you really. And, uh, and of course as a consultancy firm is also the opportunities there too. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you for that. And um, Nicole, I'd like to um, like to um, point the question at you, but also um, ask you for uh, you know to kind of finish today's podcast with maybe a few top tips or uh, yeah. recommendations if that's okay, like you know, to our listeners where where they can where they can go for additional support. Yeah. Whatever that means for them. Yeah, I think that I would certainly echo Zane and Andrew's points as far as the the kind of basis principle of the legislation. I understand. Do I think the, the way in which HMRC have designed it is the best that they could do? No, I don't. I think it's unnecessary, unnecessarily complex, cumbersome and somewhat unfair in some scenarios. But we are where we are in so far as looking down that countdown being six months to the day, actually. Um, of the implementation of the legislation and the, the kind of key areas of focus that organisations need to be looking at now are their planning and their preparations. So if you haven't already done so, appoint an IR35 project team within your organisation. Start to build up that picture of who your contingent workforce are. Some organisations found that really difficult last time round. Engage with your stakeholders through the supply chain, so both clients, suppliers and contractors and um, make sure that there's kind of consistent and um, concise communication right the way through the project and making sure that kind of participation in anything and um, expectation of anything are set and, and timelines are kind of properly communicated as well. And when organisations are looking for a solution or a way in which to consider how they administer the legislation and become compliant, think first and foremost, we always recommend taking that step back and doing a bigger due diligence type exercise, thinking about your risk appetite and how you want to continue to utilise contractors. And from that, there may be some considerations that you need to take on board as far as optimising the way in which your business engages contractors, which could benefit a more compliant way of utilising contractor type services. And once you've done that, think about what that process is going to look like from a determination perspective as far as appointing a supplier, using HMRC CEST, how you're going to involve your other stakeholders in that process. We definitely found that methods which involved both client and contractor in the assessment process were best received because contractors could, could contribute to um, their status determination. And I think, as Andrew said as well, education is such a big part of that kind of overarching plan as far as ensuring that the, the various people within the supply chain have the prerequisite information that they need in order to really understand what's required 
for the reform and how businesses can actually proactively manage that. So that would be definitely it from a, a top tips perspective. As far as where organisations, both contractors, clients and agencies can go to for resources, um, Kudos is a specialist IRA certified consultancy firm. We work with clients, we work with recruitment agencies and we work with contractors in helping position and administering IRA certified. And we have lots of free resources and guides um, short documents that kind of help organisations get to grips with timeframes, the planning, the specifics of the legislation, some of the more intricacies and nuances that's all there and available um, as free resources, um, as well as then thinking about us as potentially being a, a, a possible candidate for a provider of those types of services. That's always there as well. But I think the biggest thing for me is even if we don't get every agency client in the country working with us, that we have contributed to their knowledge and their understanding of the legislation with the kind of best position being that the vast majority of organisations within the UK ahead of April next year have taken a fair and considered approach to compliance and that's resulted in them being able to continue to utilise um, as maximum a number of contractors within their organisation as they possibly can do. Excellent. Some very valuable tips there. Thank you ever so much for that. I appreciate it, Nicole. Um, so you've heard it here. Obviously, we have six months to be prepared and get ready. Um, so overall, get planning and preparing and make sure that you uh, that you obviously put those um, those wheels into action. And if you're not keen on doing it within your organisation, obviously reach out to an organisation like Qdos um, to obviously assist you in 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 managing those expectations. From a change aspect, obviously always do remember um, uh, the, the change that people are going to go through um, so you will always want to consider how that looks from a communications Nicole said manage those expectations but think communication and um, obviously give people room and understanding to adapt to the new world that they that they're looking at whatever that is for them so on that note uh, without further ado thank you ever so much for all of our panel today for attending um, today's podcast i found it very informative and useful um, and <laughs> i could probably carry on for another hour talking about this with you because it's such a hot topic um, but i really do appreciate your time today so if any of our listeners would like more information we will as always put the details of the um, in interviewees today into the description. So go ahead and check them out on their websites, LinkedIn profiles, etc. Um, so thank you so much, everyone, for attending, and uh, I wish you a happy day. Thank you. Thanks, Nicola. Thanks. It was great chatting.